Tiny Insect, Episode 1.2, The Voyages of Jung Ho. Last episode, we did a quick run-through of Chinese history and ended with the Mongol-led Yuan Dynasty's conquest of China in the late 13th century. I'll be returning to the Mongol Empire and its successor states in a later season. For now, we're going to keep going. This episode, we're going to learn about the dynasty that replaced Yuan, the Ming Dynasty. The history of the Ming isn't directly related to the story of the Taiping, but it is an important part of the larger story I want to tell in Tiny Insect. A story of expansionism, imperial policy, colonialization, and voyages of quote-unquote exploration. And, in the broad sense in which history rhymes with itself, the rise and fall of the Ming shares plenty with the troubles the Qing Empire is going to find itself in shortly. This is also going to set us up well for next episode. So please, join me for this scenic detour down the road of Ming expansionism and the voyages of Zheng He. In 1352, a fortune teller by the name of Zhuo Zixing led a group of young men in rebellion against the Yuan. They defeated the local garrison and captured the small city of Haozhou in northern Anhui province. So began the Red Turban Rebellion, named for the red cloth Guo's followers wrapped around their heads. The Red Turban was the most important of the many rebellions that broke out against the Mongol dynasty in the mid-1300s. But Guo himself would not live to see victory. It would be his son-in-law, Zhu Yuanzhang, but more famously known by his posthumously given name, Taizu, who would overthrow the Yuan to found the Ming Dynasty. Guo and many of his followers were members of the White Lotus sect of Buddhism. The White Lotus and the Red Turban Rebellion will be an inspiration to many future agitators in China. The beliefs of the White Lotus followers, and how those beliefs intersected with politics, will drive important events in the history of the Ming and beyond. Understanding the White Lotus will also help us see how Hong Shiquan's god worshippers were different in several important ways from their rebellious predecessors and contemporaries. The White Lotus began as an offshoot of Pure Land Buddhism in the 5th century CE, and for hundreds of years it was just one of the many flavors of Buddhism in China. By the 13th century, White Lotus belief was focused on the return of Maitreya, the future Bodhisattva. If you're familiar with Catholic religious traditions, I like to think of Bodhisattvas as the supernatural saints of Buddhism. If you're completely lost now and aren't really familiar with Catholicism or Buddhism, then let me know and maybe I'll record a supplemental episode at some point. Anyways, the man who founded Buddhism, Gautama Buddha, attained enlightenment during his life. He thus escaped the cycle of life and death and is now gone from this world, inaccessible to the rest of us. Bodhisattvas, on the other hand, choose a much longer path to enlightenment, which includes helping the rest of us achieve enlightenment as well. They are available to help us out, and are often subject of ritual offerings and meditation. In White Lotus theology, Maitreya was kind of like the second coming of Jesus. Not exactly, but just to give you an idea. White Lotus adherents believed Maitreya would appear at a time of great depravity and suffering, achieve enlightenment, and save us all from the world of pain and suffering in which we live. It's not clear to me 
if the followers of the White Lotus thought their rebellion against the Yuan would bring about the coming of Maitreya, or if it was more important as a common identity. Religious sects can be tremendously effective locus points for rebellions, because their members already share a common worldview and community. This is one reason why they are often the targets of state or orthodox suppression. They can pose a potent threat to their authority. The man history would come to know as Taizu was born to a poor peasant family in 1328 in modern-day Anhui province. In 1344, at the age of 16, nearly his entire family, parents, five siblings, numerous aunts, uncles, and cousins were all killed by a pandemic. It's not recorded, but based on the timing and mortality rate, this was possibly an epidemic of bubonic plague, the Black Death. Taizu joined a Buddhist temple, but soon left when the temple ran out of funds to support him. A few years later, Taizu joined Guo and the Red Turbans. He rose quickly within the rebellion and married a woman who had been adopted by Guo as a kind of stepdaughter and became Guo's son-in-law. We're not sure who his wife was, but this remarkable woman, who is educated and literate, would become known as Empress Ma and serve as Taizu's advisor, secretary, and household manager. After a couple of years, Guo died, and Taizu took command of a large faction of rebels. In 1356, Taizu's army captured the city of Nanjing, and he declared it his capital. Over the next 20 years, he defeated all of his competitors for power, Yuan and rebels alike. He formally declared the Ming Dynasty in 1368, and became the Hongwu Emperor. One of his earliest acts as emperor was to actually ban the White Lotus, as well as several other heterodox sects. It's unclear whether or not he really ever believed the teachings of the White Lotus, or if he had just joined to escape poverty or for some other reason. Instead, Taizu promoted the idea of the quote-unquote three teachings, Orthodox Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism. He required imperial officers at all levels to conduct rituals and sacrifices to their local deities, such as gods of the river, mountain, rain, soil, etc. Taizu himself performed his own rituals in court and took them very seriously. So the White Lotus went underground, but it won't be the last we hear from them. After securing the imperial throne, Taizu kept his armies marching and pushed out to expand his territory and influence. One of Taizu's largest campaigns came in 1382, when the Ming launched an invasion of the old Dali Kingdom, which had been under Mongol rule for more than a century. The Dali Kingdom controlled the territory located to the southwest of the lands controlled by the old Song and Tang dynasties, and had never been part of quote-unquote China before. Upon victory and conquest of the Dali Kingdom, though, Taizu ordered an army of 250,000 Chinese men to settle the territory, which they named Yunnan Province. The soldiers could send for their families or marry local women, whichever they chose, but they were staying. Altogether, Taizu moved some million Han ethnic Chinese into Yuan and the southwest. Millions more colonists followed into Yunnan Province in the following centuries. This was a colonial project. Yunnan province covers about 150,000 square miles, about one-third the size of the 13 colonies that became the United States. 
The quarter of a million soldiers Taizu ordered to occupy and settle down in the territory was also equivalent to about one-third of the white free male population in those 13 colonies in 1776. Except, in the case of the 13 colonies, it had taken more than 150 years for that population to establish itself, and mostly replace the pre-existing population. The Ming set up a network of forts and checkpoints to administer the region, from which they extracted vast quantities of copper, silver, gold, and other raw materials. Taizu died in 1398 and was succeeded by his grandson, the Jianwen Emperor. Jianwen reigned for four years before he was overthrown by his uncle, Taizu's fourth son, Zhuji, the Yongli Emperor. Yongli continued his father's expansionist imperial policy and projected Ming power far beyond the traditional borders of China. In 1406, just after overthrowing his nephew, Yongli ordered the invasion of Vietnam after a Chinese ambassador was killed, though, given the scale of the reaction and the invasion, this was most likely a pretext. The Ming invaded with hundreds of thousands of soldiers, quickly defeated the ruling monarchy, and declared the land to be a new Ming Chinese province, just as his father Taizu had done with Yunnan. Confucian schools were established, and tried to bring the Ming Chinese culture to the south. Within a year, the Ming had established 472 military and civilian offices. But, in the end, the effort didn't work, and the Han Chinese culture never took hold there. Around 100,000 Ming troops occupied Vietnam and fought against the continuous guerrilla campaign for decades. The Ming finally withdrew from Vietnam in 1428, four years after Yang Li's death. If there's one rule more important than avoiding an invasion of Russia in winter, it's just never invade Vietnam, ever. In 1413, Yang Li ordered the annexation of Guizhou, a region in the southwest between Yunnan and the rest of China, after decades of semi-autonomous rule by local leaders. Going forward, it would be made a province and ruled by Confucian scholars appointed by Beijing. Within a few years of securing his throne, Yang Li received tribute delegations from no fewer than 38 foreign rulers, placing their nations in a subservient position to Yang Li and the Ming dynasty. But there were still so many more countries that did not place themselves below the Ming, and many of these lay to the south and west on the islands of Indonesia and those ringing the Indian Ocean. Perhaps inspired by Mongol declarations of universal empire, Yong Li saw no reason why these nations shouldn't pledge their loyalty and bring him gifts as well. Plus, he had just overthrown his nephew and bringing new subjects into the empire would boost the image of his own legitimacy. This wasn't going to be a single grand diplomatic tour but a sustained campaign backed by military force. To lead the campaign, Yong Li selected one of his eunuchs, a slave, servant, and important minister, a man named Zheng He. Zheng He was born in 1371 in the Dali Kingdom to a Muslim family of some means. Both Zheng's father and grandfather had completed the Hajj to Mecca. When Zheng was about 10 years old, Yongli's father Taizu launched that massive invasion and colonial occupation of Dali, 
and turned it into Yunnan province. Zheng was captured, enslaved, and castrated, as was the practice with young male prisoners. His name was changed to Zheng He, and he was given to Taizu's son, Judi, the future Yongli emperor. Zheng served the prince in a number of capacities over the following years. He fought with him against the Mongols and in the civil war that brought Yongli to power. We don't know exactly why Yongli selected Zheng He to lead the coming naval campaign. Zheng He had been with Yongli for two decades, grown up with him, so there was probably a high level of trust between the two men. The fact that Zheng He was Muslim probably helped as well, since many of the leaders he would be dealing with were also Muslim. It's important to note that, unlike many of the other events we'll cover in this season, the information that we have about these voyages is pretty sparse. Between 1405 and 1433, Zheng He led at least seven voyages and visited more than 30 countries, ranging across the Indian Ocean as far as southern Africa and modern-day Mozambique. Zheng was celebrated in Southeast Asia as the godlike Lord of Three Safeguards. His character starred in plays and novels where he was celebrated for centuries, long after memories of him had faded in China. I'm focusing on Zheng He since he was the most important and famous of the Ming maritime captains, but there were many others leading voyages during this period as well. In all, there were at least 25 different expeditions during this period. What did these voyages look like, and where did they go? Zheng's first fleet made an impression. It consisted of 317 ships and carried over 27,000 men. The vast majority of them were soldiers, equipped with the best firearms China had available, which at the time were probably some of the best in the world. Among the 317 ships were 62 enormous treasure ships. Zheng He's flagship was 300 feet long and 150 feet wide. The ships sported cutting-edge innovations such as double hulls, rust-resistant nails, and watertight compartments. The first voyage went to Calicut on the southwest coast of the Indian subcontinent, with stops in Champa, Malacca, Java, and elsewhere. We don't know much about what happened on this and subsequent trips, but the first included a battle on Sumatra that left 5,000 enemies dead. Subsequent voyages were a bit smaller, ranging from just 50 to about 250 ships. Later voyages traveled to Kenya, Somalia, and Mecca, where Zhang completed his Hajj. They established a sort of military colony in Malacca to help control the strategic straits and shipping routes through that key area. In 1411, one of Zheng's fleets invaded Sri Lanka and crushed its defenders. The island's ruler and royal family were captured and taken back to Nanjing as hostages, and a puppet ruler was installed in their place. Zheng and his fleets also inserted themselves in at least one civil war to promote the interests of a candidate friendlier to main interests in the region. There are reports and references to several other attacks on native populations, but the record of these isn't great, we don't know that much. We also don't know the reason why the Ming stopped sending these voyages in 1433. But, in contrast with the so-called European voyages of exploration, state-sponsored Ming voyages did stop. Overland campaigning and fighting didn't cease during these overseas voyages. 
The invasion and occupation of Vietnam that I mentioned earlier happened simultaneously with all these ocean-going voyages. In the 1430s and 1440s, Ming armies tried to push beyond Yunnan in the southwest, territory occupied by ethnic Thai peoples. And then there was the north. With all of the expansion and exploration that the Ming pursued under Taizu and Yongli, the Mongol invasion of the 13th century taught the dynasty that their most pressing security concern was a united steppe polity. Yongli moved the capital of the empire from Nanjing in the south to Beijing in the north. He did this so the court could be closer to the border in order to respond quickly to any threats that arose. In addition to maintaining a huge wall and the garrisons to man it, the Ming launched regular incursions into Mongolia to check any rising group. These incursions were often led by the emperor himself. In 1449, however, this policy ended in folly. On campaign, the Zhongtong emperor was captured by a Mongol army. Before the Mongols could use this as leverage against the Ming, the court officials in Beijing deposed Zhongtong in absentia and crowned his younger brother emperor. The Ming was strong enough to bounce back from this episode and survive for nearly 200 more years with highs and lows along the way. But this does mark the end of Ming expansionism, exploration, and empire building, and thus the end of what I wanted to talk about today. Next episode, we'll fast forward to the downfall of the Ming dynasty and what might be the first truly global financial crisis in world history. This crisis will help bring the Qing dynasty to power in China, but it will also foreshadow some of the same problems that will foment the rise of the Taiping and the Great Civil War of the mid-19th century. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a 5-star rating and review. Ratings and reviews will help other listeners find the show. If you have any feedback for the show, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TinyInsectPod. Thanks for listening.